The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Okay, we are in the book of Joshua. We're starting chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to do 11 verses today. I know that's a lot, but we're going to do 11 full verses. Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy out secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house. For they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to the, them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Many years ago, I ran the wastewater plant that treated the water for all of the Gulf Gate area. The company provided all the water and wastewater services, including the big blue tower just behind us, but I preferred the wastewater side of the job. Running a plant is a lot like running your own body, just with a lot more volume. Stuff comes in, it has to be processed, and stuff goes out in a completely different condition. It's pretty much an all-natural process with the addition of several non-toxic chemicals. When we eat, the minerals and vitamins contained in food are used by our bodies to make them work well. 
The treatment plants need iron and other things to be added in so that the big stomach doesn't get upset. The plant needs air pumped through it to keep the microscopic bugs alive. The plant converts things from one form to another. It's so much like how we function. That includes when things get into the system that shouldn't be in there as well. Things can upset our stomachs or even poison them. Well, this is true with the big stomach at the plant. One Saturday morning, I got a call from one of the operators, Jason, a really nice guy. He said, Charlie, the plant is dead. We did 0.0% nitrification. A dead plant is a bad thing for many reasons, but mostly because the untreated water still has to leave the plant. But those tanks have a very short time before they are full and flow downhill to where they finally rush out to Sarasota Bay. We had hours at best to fix things. Our text verse comes from Hebrews 11. By faith, the harlot Rahav did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. I got to the plant in a matter of minutes. We immediately turned one tank into a holding tank and started pumping every single drop of the dead bug out of the plant and into that holding tank. We then took a giant reserve of live bug from what is known as a digester and pumped that back into the plant. Within probably one to two hours, the plant was running as if it had never had a problem. That not only saved Sarasota Bay from becoming polluted with an unknown but highly toxic chemical, saving all the fish and other aquatic life out there like Flipper, but it saved the company hundreds of thousands or maybe more in fines. The dead bug that we pumped to the temporary storage tank had to be loaded onto trucks and hauled to a special treatment center out of state. It was an immensely expensive process, but it had to be done. After analysis of the contents, it was determined that someone had poured highly toxic chemicals used in photography into the sewer system. Out of sight, out of mind, or so they thought. If it wasn't for the quick thinking of Jason, who was working all alone on Saturday morning, Sarasota Bay would have received much of that toxicity, along with hundreds of thousands of gallons of untreated wastewater. Today, we will meet a similarly quick-thinking lady. Life and death are on the line for her, and she knows it. But she wasn't a top executive of a major company somewhere, was she? She was just a prostitute. Who would think that someone like that would end up in the genealogy of the savior of the world? Great, great things such as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is, I did not know. Liar, liar, and so on. It's verses one through seven. Now, before we go on, Brian just walked in, and I worked with Brian at that plant for quite a few years. And you remember Jason Collins, don't you? Yes. Well, you showed up late for the sermon, so you didn't get to hear the nice things I had to say about him. But that's okay. We started the sermon early today. But Brian, is he is a wastewater treatment plant extraordinaire. He's a brilliant man. Okay, our first thought today, as I said, is I did not know. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men. As noted in the previous sermon, the words of verse 111 most likely follow chronologically after the account which is now given. 
There it said this, pass through the camp and command the people, saying, prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. As such, what is now to be detailed is an event that precedes the preparation of the people to enter Canaan, and the words had sent instead of sent should be used. These two are sent out, verse 1 continues, from Acacia Grove to spy secretly. Min hashitim shnaim anashim meraglim cheresh. From the Acacia Groves, two men reconnoiterers secretly. The location is the shitim, or translated the Acacia Groves. Also saying to spy secretly is a redundancy. The word is ragal, coming from regel, or foot. It is one who walks about, but it is to be taken in a specific way. In this case, it is to reconnoiter. But that is then defined with a new word to scripture, cheresh, or secretly. It is in this capacity that Joshua is, verse 1 continues, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. The word especially is not in the text, even if it is implied. It reads, go see the land and Jericho. They were to do a general reconnoiter of the land, but also to ensure that they focused on Jericho. With that stated, it next says, verse 1 continues, So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahav and lodged there. The Hebrew is more expressive. And they went, and they came to house woman, harlot, and named Rahav. And they lie down there. Here, the text identifies Rahav as a harlot, a word used consistently to speak of a whore or a prostitute. It is often used in scripture to describe Israel in their whoring after false gods. However, the root of Zonah, Z-N-H, is the same root used for a female who gives food and provisions an innkeeper. For this reason, rabbinic texts explain that this is what is being referred to. Even Josephus said that she kept an inn. And thus, liberal teachers are quick to grab onto this and identify her as having a noble background. Unfortunately, if they would simply read the New Testament, they would not make such a blundering error. Our text verse today was from Hebrews 11 verse 31. Both there and in James 2.25, she is identified as a harlot a prostitute, using the Greek word porny. I assure you that porny does not mean an innkeeper. Okay, if you can see the word porno in there, the same word is used to describe her as such also in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Though the spelling of her name in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew is different than that of Hebrews in James, it is certain that this is the same woman so clearly referenced in Joshua. It is the entire point of including her in the narrative and in the genealogy. This is a problem with consulting rabbinic literature. I do not recommend people do that unless they are already grounded in the Bible because rabbinic literature does not have the focus of what? Jesus Christ. And so you're going to get bad information. The rabbis didn't like that a prostitute was in the genealogy of David and thus in that of the coming Messiah. So they attempted to sugarcoat the obvious. This is not uncommon in their writings. 
The apostles saw no such difficulty and understood that the very same fallen women, such as Rahav and Bathsheba, could be used as key participants in the unfolding narrative of redemption that would lead us to God's Christ. It should be noted that even reputable scholars, with all fudginess possible, attempt to repair her reputation. Adam Clark went down innumerable avenues to patch up Rahav's image. In the end, he sums up his thoughts as to why he needed to do so. Here's what he says. To all this may be added that as our blessed Lord came through the line of this woman, it cannot be a matter of little consequence to know what moral character she sustained. As an innkeeper, she might be respectable, if not honorable. As a public prostitute, she could be neither. And it is not very likely that the providence of God would have suffered a person of such a notoriously bad character to enter into the sacred line of his genealogy. Rather, it is expressly because she was a prostitute that the story is so glorious. A key point of this, at least from a moral perspective, is that God has accepted you. You may have been a prostitute, had an abortion, divorced your wife, secretly killed someone, been an alcoholic, or whatever. And yet the beauty and even the glory of God in Christ says, come, my grace is sufficient. Whatever your past was in Christ, your future will never be the same. Come to Christ. This is the lesson of Rahav, and so far we have only been introduced to her with a short description, a woman, a prostitute. Her name, Rahav, comes from the verb Rahav, meaning to be or to grow wide or large. It is used in the Old Testament to indicate enlargement of an area, such as in a border, or baldness on the head, like my head. The size of Sheol, because Sheol is always getting bigger with more and more souls, and so on. It is also used to refer to enlarging the heart, opening the mouth, and so on. Thus, her name means spacious or enlarged. One must wonder what would prompt a name like this. As she's a prostitute, and as it appears her family was fully aware of this, as will be seen in the narrative, it may be that this was her lot all along. She was born to be a prostitute, something not uncommon in many cultures. As such, and solely as speculation by me, her name may have been given to her to reflect the work that she would do, such as Isaiah prophesied concerning Israel when using the same root verb. Here's what Isaiah said using that word. Also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged, rahav, your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. Whatever the intent behind the name, and regardless of her profession, she will be a key figure in the history of Israel leading to the Messiah. For now, verse 2, and it was told the king of Jericho, saying, as Jericho is a walled city, it had a ruling elder here called a king because of the authority that he would have over the populace. It was probably sentinels that guarded the gates who told the king. People would be free to come in and go out of such a city, but it would be negligent to not tell the leader of any unusual foreigners that came around. The spies would be only two strangers coming in, probably unarmed, and this would not be a reason to keep them out. But being Hebrews, it would be at least worthy of raising the matter to the king. 
Verse 2 continues, Behold, men have come here tonight. This would explain how they wound up meeting Rahav. As a prostitute, she would be hanging around the gates of the city in the evening to entice any travelers to spend the night at her place. It fits naturally into the narrative. As for the men, they were, verse 2 continues, from the children of Israel. One can only surmise that the two men told them this. Their accents would be unusual, but so would the accents of other people from all over the area. Having never heard anyone before from Israel, it would be unlikely that they could be identified as such unless they were simply told it was so. This probably goes for the next words. Verse 2 continues to search out the country. Lachpor et haaretz, to search out the land. One can imagine it. Hey guys, where are you coming from? Ah, we're Israelis, we're just checking things out. We've never been here before. Okay, good to have you, come on in. It would be a common and innocuous greeting between them, but still one worth reporting. Verse 3, so the king of Jericho sent to Rahav, saying, he's already been identified as the king of Jericho. As such, it is implicit as a stress on the fact by saying, the king of Jericho, rather than just the king. As such, the words are made more poignant, and thus the actions of Rahav, to whom the king's words were directed, are brought forth as well. His words are, verse 3 continues, bring out the men who have come to you. A verb is used in the place of a noun. Chotzi ha'anashim habayim elayik. Bring out the men, the comers, unto you. The king was apprised of the situation. He knew exactly who had come and who they had gone into. If it is these two Israelis, verse 3 continues, who have entered your house. Ashur ba'u lebetech who have entered to your house. Regardless of her type of business, to entertain a stranger meant the right to proper treatment and protection for those in the house. Unless a refusal was made by Rahav, they would be bound by the honor found in Middle Eastern culture to ask her to deliver them rather than having the guards forcing themselves into her home. This is what provides her with the opportunity to take the action of hiding the Hebrew spies. In the meantime, those sent to her continue with, verse 3 going on, for they have come to search out all the country. The words expand upon the corresponding clause of verse 2 by adding the word all to what is now said, ki lachpor et kal haaretz ba'u, for to search out all the land they have come. As John Lang correctly states, notice the full circumstantiality of the king's command. The king has deduced that they are not merely tourists looking for a fun time, but they are men on a mission to determine the state of things for an invasion. One can see that even as they are speaking at the door, she's pointing out where the men can go and hide. Verse 4, then the woman took the two men and hid them. The words curiously go here from the plural to the singular. Vatika ha'isha et shene ha'anashim vatitzpeno and took the woman to the men and hid him. It goes from the plural to the singular. Now, I've read commentary after commentary after commentary on there, and none of them came up with a valid explanation. I came up with my own explanation, and about three days ago, somebody sitting here said, I've always thought, and she said exactly what I will now read to you. Good job, Rhoda. <laughs> the Greek translation reads, them. And without the later addition of the vowel points by the Masoretes, this could be read as them. But for some reason, the Masoretes carefully recorded it as 
him. John Gill notes the Jews' ridiculous take on this saying. Hence, the Jews who take these two spies to be Caleb and Phineas say that only Caleb was hid and Phineas, though he was before them, was not seen, being an angel. Ewald sees this as the free discourse in which one passes from the plural to the singular. I don't know any human in the world that would do that, except a liberal that's trying to tell you that you are now, instead of a he, a them or something. <laughs> Other than that, that is not normal discourse. The pulpit commentary explains this as each man being hidden in a separate place. But these notions hardly explain this. It is as if one of them is being singled out, them and then him. Despite that, one can see her pointing to the two and saying in a hush, go up on the roof. I'll get rid of them. They would have no choice but to trust her because the king's men were standing there. It would make no sense for her to try to hide them just to say to the king's men, hey, they're up on the roof. Simply opening the door would have had exactly the same effect. In reading the account, it makes one, meaning me and now Rhoda, wonder if one of these two men didn't become her future husband. It is holy speculation but they are identified in verse 623 as young men. They are old enough to be sent out on a mission, but probably unmarried and are most likely in their mid to late teens. This completely dispels the Jewish idea that these are Caleb and Phineas, one of whom is almost 80 at this point. That's why I say don't read rabbinic commentaries. You are wasting your time. All right. Rahab's attitude and actions towards them, along with the curious change from plural to singular, reveal a quickly developed affinity that raises this idea in my mind. Now, having said that, everything that we see in these sermons is typologically anticipating something in the New Testament. We all know that. So you're not going to get the answer as to what this is anticipating until next week. But there's a reason why it goes from the plural to the singular in typology as well. Verse 4 continues. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. This is her first lie. It is already known where they are from, as will be seen in verse 9. Having arrived at the point where a lie has been introduced, it must be noted that the comments by scholars on this go on and on. They bring in the nature of God and of the terrible thing that she has done by lying, carefully noting that a lie is always sin. From there, they go on into the notion of forgiveness and mercy because of her faith and so on. It is true that lying is sin, but what is it that brings this about? Law. She is not under law, but she has a conscience. And so either her conscience is seared, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, and she is corrupt, or she has weighed the matter out and she is working under a law of faith. Charles Ellicott wisely evaluates the matter. Here's what he said. The divine standard of sin and holiness never varies, but the standard of man's conscience, even when faith is a dominant principle in the character, may vary to a very considerable degree. In Jesus Christ, all that believe are justified from all things, but by deeds of the law, no one. Here, as elsewhere, the application of the law only brings the discovery of sin. Charles Ellicott is absolutely right about that. Rather than focusing on something contrary to the divine standard, the narrative focuses on exaltation of it through her words and actions that are grounded in faith. 
This is not unlike those who hid Jews in World War II. Even though the Bible says we are to be subject to the governing authority, there is often a time that such obedience must be disobeyed for a higher purpose. With that understood, Rahab continues. Verse 5, And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. The next lie. However, it is more than a simple lie, but also a fabrication. She's making stuff up on the fly to construct a convincing argument in order to hide the truth. It is after dark, the gates are shut as the sun goes down, and they are only opened when those coming to it in either direction can be individually identified and authorized for passing through it. Thus, her words form a persuasive argument that is credible and would put her in jeopardy if it were not so. Hence, they have no reason to not believe it. Verse 5 continues, where the men went, I do not know. The third lie, she's fully aware of where they are, and the Bible doesn't hide either the fact that she does know or that she lied. It simply conveys the details of the story, allowing us to come to our own conclusions about the matter. While at the same time that her words are contrary to the divine nature, the reason behind them and the actions which are joined to them are not. Since this account was compiled, the same value judgments have been made continuously throughout human history. The number of people who took exactly the same path as Rahab during the Holocaust alone is large. And those who did what they did are cited as heroes by people who would stand over Rahab and accuse her for being a little liar. We live in a fallen world and there are times when judgments must be made that stand outside of the propriety of the law. And yet, they will inevitably be the right choices when the larger situation is taken into consideration and when the person's faith is properly directed. The evaluation of Rahab in Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2 bears this out. Verse 5 continues, Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. The words are well thought out. She's already convincingly stated that they are not with her, having no discernible reason to lie and every reason to tell the truth. Adding these words intensifies the urgency to get about finding those miscreants. Some may call her conniving, but others would see her as quick thinking and resourceful, just like my friend Jason on that Saturday morning many years ago. Verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof. Vehi he'elatam ha-gaga. And she had caused them to ascend to the roof. The meaning is that she told them to go up to the roof, and they went up. As noted earlier, this was probably as the king's messengers came to the door. At that time, she pointed for them to go up, and so they went up. The roofs of such houses were flat and were easily accessible because many things were done on top of them, from dinners and small parties to accomplishing various types of work and even for bathing or sleeping. It is probably after the messengers left that the next words came about. Verse 6 continues, and hidden them with the stalks of flax. The verb is imperfect. Va titmenem bepishte haets, and hides them in flax, the wood. These are stalks of flax that are said to grow about three or more feet in length. After cutting, they would be set out in an array to dry. 
as seen in the next clause, this would be where the men could easily be hidden. Now, over the years, you see pictures of the harlot hiding these spies on a roof, if you've seen like the kids' books that show this. And it's always the guys laying down and she's covering them with stalks of flax. That's not what happened. They stand up like this, okay? And so they can dry all the way around. And so they would have been able to hide within the standing flax. I just wanted you to see that. Okay, verse 6 continues. Which she had laid in order on the roof. Ha'arukot la al-hagag. The arrayed to her upon the roof. In other words, they had been laid out in an array upon the roof for drying. In this manner, they could get sun from all around and uniformly dry as they stood in these particular arrangements. The roof would be the area where that was done. Eventually, the stalks would be worked and made into linen. She would have hidden them in these arrayed stalks until it was certain that nobody would be coming back to inspect the place and until they could make their escape. Verse 7, then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan. Vaha anashim radfu acharechem derek hayarden. And the men pursued after them way the Jordan. This would be the logical route to take. It would have been known that Israel was on the other side of the Jordan, and so to get to the Jordan as quickly as possible would be the most obvious thing to do. As it says, verse 7, to the fords. Al ha mabrut, upon the fords. The word ma'avar signifies a passing through. It can be fords of a river or the passages through a mountain. As this is plural, it probably means that a group of soldiers went out and one or two of them stood upon each of the fords within reasonable distance of Jericho. Verse 7 continues, And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Because of the way the words are laid out, a direct translation is very difficult. It would read with a direct translation, And the gate they shut after as which had gone out the pursuers after them. It means just as the English translation says, once those pursuing the men went out, the gates were shut. Being nighttime, they were taking no chances of a sudden rush by the enemy or anyone getting in or out that should not do so. Other than face masks and vaccines, the city had gone into lockdown. <laughs> Who are you and where are you from? And why is your accent so odd? Come inside and explain to me some. What is your people and who is your God? We are Israel, and just checking things out, you know, seeing what is up in this place. We're searching the land to see what it's all about, and it's so nice to see your smiling face. We have heard of you. Your life is in danger in this place, but I can hide you if anyone comes around. I want you to remember my face. I hope for mercy from you, if it can be found. I will join with your people. Please remember my face after I've gotten you safely out of this place. Our second thought today is for we have heard. It's verses 8 through 11. Verse 8. Now before they lay down. There is a stress in the words vehema terem yishkavun and they before they certainly lay down. It shows the imperative nature of what will come next. With the messengers gone and the soldiers sent out of the city, things would have calmed down enough for the two men to lie down and to sleep. But before they could do this, she ascended to the roof to converse with them. Verse 8 continues, She came up to them on the roof. Vehi aleta alechem al-hagag. And she ascended upon them, upon the roof. 
Her words to come are filled with careful attention concerning the state of those in Canaan, the knowledge of the Lord and his care for Israel and of her faith in the Lord's capabilities. Verse 9, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Rahab explicitly speaks out the name Yehovah. Yadati ki natan Yehovah lachem et haaretz. I know for has given Yehovah to you the land. She's both aware of this name and she understands his purposes for Israel. Her faith in the capability of the Lord is demonstrated in the words has given Yehovah to you the land. It is a done deal, even though the actions that will cause it to come about have not even yet begun. She knows this and more. All of the people know it as well. Verse nine going on that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. Here she uses the word mug or melt and that have melted all dwelling the land from your presence. This was the purpose of the Lord's dealings with Pharaoh. Going through the plagues gradually was intended to slowly harden Pharaoh's heart. If he had gone in and done something beyond their imagination right at the beginning, Pharaoh might have just said, hey, let him go. But that's not what happened. The Lord started with simple plagues that were reproducible by Pharaoh's own magicians. He then brought more plagues that one might think would logically follow one after another. If you turn water into blood, you will bring out frogs. If the frogs all die, the bugs that the frogs eat will increase exponentially. From there, pestilence on the livestock will result, and so forth. The Lord followed a set path to slowly harden the heart of Pharaoh. He would have been well-educated, and he would have attributed these things to what he could naturally observe. By the time the greater plagues came, he would be hardened to the point where more hardening would be the inevitable result. And this is exactly what the Lord intended. By multiplying his judgment, he would magnify his name. And in doing that, the nations would then hear and fear. Here's what it says in Exodus 7. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. The Egyptians would know all that happened and the word from them as they traded with the nations would naturally carry right back to the homes of those who traded. By the time the greatest plague hit, the death of the firstborn of Egypt, Pharaoh would want them gone and even drive them out. But because of the hardness of his heart, he would relent and attempt to retrieve them. In that, the great and miraculous event that would finally destroy Pharaoh's power would come. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. This is Rahab speaking. Don't get too far away from the narrative. This is a prostitute living in a city understanding what God had done. The story of the Red Sea crossing was 40 years earlier, but it was well known and remembered by all who heard it. And the credit is given to Jehovah, and it is given on behalf of the people of Israel. The narrative was clearly and precisely remembered. This was exactly the purpose of the Lord having multiplied his judgments upon Pharaoh. 
A swift, sudden, and decisive early judgment would not have led to the knowledge of the Lord by Rahav and all of the others throughout Canaan. But more, she says, verse 10 continues, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. This was very recent history, and it would have resounded with the people calling to mind the tales of the past and both reaffirming them and adding to the terror of the present. And again, this is exactly what Moses said would occur, beginning with Sihon. He says in Deuteronomy 2, rise, take your journey, and cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. The conquest of Sihon was immediately followed up with the conquest of Og. As such, verse 11, and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. The words as soon as are not in the Hebrew. It is short and specific. And we hear and melted our hearts. The tales of the Red Sea would have been known, but not considered for many years. But with the sudden coming of Israel upon the land east of the Jordan and of the victories over the great inhabitants there, there would be utter panic at what lay ahead. As such, verse 11 continues, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. And no stood again spirit in man from before you. The idea is that every man became completely dispirited and he could not get himself to regain his courage again. They simply remained terrified. Hence, we saw the reaction of the king of Jericho. Rahav next makes a sure statement of faith in what she now perfectly knows. Verse 11 continues, For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahav's words are emphatic. Ki Yehovah Elohechem hu Elohim bashmaim mima'al ve'al ha'aretz mitachat. For Yehovah your God, he God in the heavens from above and upon the land from beneath. They are practically the words of Moses, but most especially in these words from Deuteronomy 4. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Verses 9 through 11 can be summed up in the words of the Song of Moses from Exodus 15. Then the chiefs of Adam will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. She just used the word mug or melt. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord till the people pass over whom you have purchased. This is a logical point to end the words for today. Rahab has demonstrated faith in the capabilities of the Lord, even to the point that what she does aligns with what she believes. This brings in the obvious difficulty that is evidenced between the writings of Paul and those of James, something that we will look at in just a moment. With what will you come before the Lord? What will you present for the sin of your soul? What will bring you the great reward? On what thing will you your sins roll? Shall you accomplish a great and noble deed 
claiming it is worthy of his praise? Shall giving up a wicked life for one of greed bring you honor, blessing, and eternal days? Rather, come to your God in faith because of his grace. Come to him with hands empty of any pride. By grace through faith alone will you see his smiling face, and through that alone will you in heaven reside. Our third thought today is a lesson in faith. Paul says in Romans 3, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. He then goes on to say, What then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. A few verses later, he says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul says elsewhere as well, both indirectly and directly. And yet James says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. This is a problem because preachers, teachers, and scholars then come up with impossible to reconcile solutions, such as good works stem naturally from saving faith. That is nonsense, and it is not ever taught in Scripture. First, tell that to the guy on the cross next to Jesus. Secondly, the obvious question is, what works? Who decides what is sufficient work to say, yes, he is saved and he is not? And thirdly, isn't lying evidence of not doing what is right? So if a person does some good things and some things that aren't good, like Rahav, then who decides that her works are acceptable for saving or not? It completely misses the intent of what Paul is saying, and it dismisses what James is saying. In James 2, he gives only two examples of what works justify a person. The first was, astonishingly, that of Abraham, the exact same person that Paul says was justified by faith alone. Here's what he says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect? His second example is equally incredibly Rahab. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And is James saying that these two people were not justified by faith? If so, then he didn't read the epistle to Hebrews because both of them are used as examples there for being people of faith. And more, both of them have exactly the same works cited as works of faith. Here it is, Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham. When he was tested, here it is, offered up Isaac, the same example that James just gave, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And then from Hebrews 11 again, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. When she had received the spies with peace. So how can it be that works justified them? If their faith was behind the works, then it was faith that justified them. Their works were simply works of faith. It is true that their works were products of the faith, but that is not what justified them. Their faith did. 
So the question remains, what works? What is it that will save the human being and bring him before God justified and acceptable to him? Jesus gave the answer from John chapter 6. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. The works which justify are the works of Jesus Christ. Faith in him may or may not lead to our own works, but it is he who did the works. It is he who fulfilled the law. It is he who died in fulfillment of the law, and it is he who rose again. And it is we, here it is, here are our works, who are to believe in him. It is entirely false that good works stem naturally from saving faith because no good works are defined for us to do except those things that are found for us to do that are recorded in Scripture. But if a person hears the gospel, accepts it, and is saved, unless he has his own Bible, which is something almost unheard of in much of history, and still for many, many, many people of the world today, they cannot do what is expected from the Word, can they? In the end, everything comes back to one thought for our justification, faith. And it is faith plus nothing. If you want to be pleasing to God, have faith. If you want to add to that, learn his word and apply its precepts to your life. And when you do good things, if they are done because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you will receive your reward. Have faith in that. This is the message of the Bible is that God has done the incredible that we cannot do for ourselves. The Bible from the very, very beginning says that man sinned against God. He was given a law. We talked about Rahab not being under law, but she is under a law. She's under the law of conscience, okay? God gave Adam a law, and he broke that law. And when he broke that law, sin entered into the world. And every single human being since Adam has inherited that sin every one of us. And so we're already separated from God. If you don't believe me, go read John 3.18. Everybody knows John 3.16. Just go read John 3.18. He who has not believed in the Son is condemned already. It's a done deal. We're going this way in time. We can't go back and undo what Adam did, and we can't undo all the things that we keep doing wrong. God is not pleased with us. He cannot hear your prayers because your sins have separated you from him. It's done. We're already, people ask, well, what about the person that never hears about Jesus? It doesn't matter. He's already condemned. That's why we spend money and send it overseas to get people to hear about Jesus because we want them to come out of what they are already in. It's logical. It is right that we do that. And so God did the incredible. Here we are in our sin. And he gave Israel a body of law to say, This is my standard. If you can do this, the man who does the things of this law, Leviticus 18.5, will live. And then he recorded the next 1,500 years of history to prove that nobody could do those things. Every single one of them, without exception, is in the grave. They're all dead. We don't see anybody like David walking around today. Oh, yeah, he's back there at the Jordan. No, they're all dead. It was a tutor to lead us to the knowledge that we need something more. What we need is what God is going to do, who entered into the stream of human existence. 
uniting with human flesh. So he is God and he is man. We call that the God-man. Okay? The hypostatic union. Always God, always man, forever and ever. The two don't overlap and the two don't separate. They are one. This is what he did. Now, he's entered into the stream of human existence, born under the law and born without sin because his father is God, so he didn't inherit Adam's sin. So he is capable of taking away our sin. But can he do it? And that's what the four Gospels are for, is to record his life and to show us that he is not only capable of taking away our sin, but qualified to do so as well, because he never sinned under that law. The man who does the things of the law will live. And he gave up that life, that perfect life, so that we could be reconciled to God through him. This is the message of Jesus Christ. If we simply believe by faith, that's all that he asks of us is to simply believe. Please spread this message to other people. Ensure that you get people overseas funded so they can tell people that have never heard the Bible so they don't go to hell. Because this is where we're all going without Jesus. Please accept the gospel and then do your deeds of faith and God will reward you, okay? Our closing verse comes from Galatians chapter 3. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. That's right there in the Old Testament, folks. We don't need to go to the New to figure that out. Next week, Joshua 2, 12 through 24. To the spies, Rahab, these words does submit. It's entitled, According to Your Words, So Be It. That'll be our fourth Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him. And trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I got a poem for you. It's entitled, A Harlot Named Rahav. But I've got a question for you. If you have been reading the book of Jeremiah recently, you may get this answer. Or if you have a really good memory, you may get this answer. Jeremiah was a priest of what city located in what tribe? Anatote. What tribe? Who said that anyway? Oh, you said that. Anatote. If you, Benjamin, okay, I'm going to give it to both of you because you, you're like a couple. You are one according to the Bible. So if you had stayed, gotten up early on um, Saturday morning, okay, if you had gotten up early on Saturday morning at four o'clock on Newsmax TV, there was a couple of shows by these two people, great people. Sergio and Rhoda in Israel. And Newsmax TV is doing their videos, okay? And they did two of them at four o'clock on Saturday morning. And one of them was David and Goliath, where there was a bearded preacher they called to get some information. And then the second one was a walk from Jericho to Jerusalem, where this bearded preacher went, okay? So now I'm a movie star. Anyway, um, having said that, I mentioned in that video, there's Anatote, where Jeremiah was from. Okay, and I remarked how barren that place is. I mean, that is super barren. Amazing. You read the Bible and you think, oh, Anatote, they has got these trees all over and there's running streams and little, there were deer jumping around those hills though. Remember that? Out in the middle of nowhere, you could see them just jumping around the hills. But there you go. That's the answer. You both get it as one. So I, we can't both fit in here. So you can take your wife for a spin. <laughs> Fill it up before you come back. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here's our poem. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spike secretly saying, 
go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahav and lodged there thinking no one would know. And it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. For sure, this just ain't right. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahav saying, bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the country, such they came to do. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from, so I tell you plainly. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out, their escape they did make. Where the men went, I do not know, pursue them quickly, for them you may overtake." But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. She carefully covered their tracks. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, heading straight. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Yes, I know it's true that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, such great wonders he has employed, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in any one. Because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. He is the only one. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Okay, time for communion. I actually have a confession. Yes. When you asked what tribe he's from, yeah. that was a complete guess. Oh, well, you were right. I was going to name all 12 really fast. Oh. He started with B. There you go, started with B. And the first one was right. All, all I can say is so she gets to ride with me. You don't get to rat in the blame. Um, we have, uh, he's taking me with him. Um, okay, so we, um, Benjamin, he was not a Benjamite. He was a Levite, a priest of the Levites, but they were in the Levitical city of Anatot. In Joshua, what you have is the tribes are given their land, and then the Levites are given cities within the land as Levitical cities. We went through that in the book of Numbers, okay? So that's what happened there, and he, smart guy, I mean, he got it right away, Benjamin, good job. Okay, let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to come into your presence and to share a moment taking the Lord's Supper together. Lord, what you have done for us at the cross of Calvary is beyond comprehension. It is marvelous in the extreme. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the blood that you shed. And we thank you for the opportunity to fellowship with you through the Lord's Supper each week. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And we bless this in your name. Amen. Amen.